0: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, Whatever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey.
1: And I'm Robert Diamond.
0: And this is Talk
1: Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you
0: today, Robert?
1: Today, Russell, I feel like I'm under a spell. Ooh. A spell of a legend. And I've been thinking a lot about the idea of legends and the myths that are created um historically through culture and we were born in the early 1980s i'm aging you know aren't i Russ? because I mean, you I, were born, I'm born a year before maybe yeah. okay so i'm technically a bit older than you i was born 1980 so my whole childhood was kind of under the spell of a like pop musicians like prince madonna and these kind of like very iconic people like freddie mercury who really did in their own way create these kind of incredibly powerful visual myths and illusions and this idea of the mask. And then through popular contemporary art of the time, I sort of began to love art without even really being totally aware that I was falling in love with art at the time when I was sort of five, six years old, and then seven. And I remember one of the earliest things was Andy Warhol's series of endangered species, um, which last week, you and I, uh, which we've done for more than 15 years now, went to an exhibition together. And we actually got to see all of the screen prints of endangered species, which I'd never seen in real life before. I think maybe I'd seen, Thank <laughs> How like would you the see giant, them then? Well, I, I think I'd seen the giant paintings ah. um, in, in a museum show, but I'd never seen them on, on paper, like the screen prints. And they were so cool. And it just brought back this kind of full circle experience for me of literally that's one of the earliest memories I have, have of art. And now we are here today to talk about Andy Warhol. And they're currently on view in London at the Halcyon Gallery um, in an amazing new epic exhibition, which has taken years to put together. And the quality of this exhibition is second to none. I mean, we'll talk about that because these works on paper are in pristine condition as well so if you want to see great examples of Andy Warhol's work you must get to um, New Bond Street there are two galleries one is at 148 and one is at 29 and it's running until the 24th of March 2024 so you have ages to go and see it and the best thing is it's free you can just walk in and see it and there's a real variety of work and you and I had a ball there. I think we stayed more than like an hour and a half or something. We were just like non-stop talking to the people who worked there. Yeah. And guess what? Well, we're fanboys, Rob. We, we are were, fanboys. We were, we were in our element. Um, and today we're getting to meet the founder of Halcyon and also the curator, who we also did actually hear guiding a collector around the gallery when we were in there. And her level of passion and enthusiasm and knowledge was infectious. So we are very excited to welcome to Art the one and only... Paul Green, Green and, and Kate, Kate Brown. Brown.
0: <laughs> Hi guys. Hello. That's Hi. a that's a big introduction. <laughs> does it does it make you nervous? <laughs> no. No good. good. So Paul Green and Kate Brown. Do you need a colour? as your
2: surname, to work at Halcyon.
3: That's right. We need a kernel mustard.
2: Yeah, it's always, it's always interesting when we travel. Yeah, green and brown. Yeah, OK. Yeah. yeah.
0: So the Halcyon Gallery, why is it called the Halcyon Gallery? And how long has it been on New Bond Street? Because I know that you established, you founded it in
2: 1982. Yeah, wow. That's, yeah, that's a... Um, yeah, I don't know if I often get that, asked that question. So uh, I'll try and give you the short answer. Uh, when I actually fell into the art business. I was um, selling anigoni prints, believe it or not, who did the famous portrait of the blue portrait of the Queen that you see in all the bomb movies and everything else. And I went to Florence and met him and sort of an epiphany and started, came back. And then um, somebody had got a gallery above New Street Station of all places or a, a china and glass shop. And we were selling pictures. We opened a gallery and, and, and I got fed up. And my dad was a a tailor and he was giving up his business and i said would you like to go into business together so believe it or not we were going to <laughs> open in the kingfisher center in redditch of all places and my father was something of a scholar and he knew that it was uh, kingfisher it was greek for halcyon and the legend of halcyon days etc so anyway we called it halcyon gallery and we opened our 850 square feet above new street station selling 10 pound pictures and um yeah, decided that that was what we were going to do. I, I actually think philosophically it, it really changed everything because that's when I realised that most people don't buy art or don't look at art, and if you open the doors and you allow them in, you get this incredible reaction, and we did some crazy things there.
0: But you knew you wanted to be an art dealer
2: from a really young age. Um, well, I, 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 it was, it, it was... Going to Florence and, and really meeting these artists and seeing what they did and, and, and using Conte Crayon or, or doing frescoes on walls that I knew nothing about, um, uh, yeah, it was something of an epiphany, really, and that's changed my whole life. When
0: did you move the gallery from Birmingham New Street down to New Bond Street? Uh,
2: well, we actually got a gallery in Selfridges, believe it or not, and um, then about 25 years ago, Um, We had our first gallery on Bruton Street, small gallery. And then we moved to a larger gallery and then moved around the corner. And then we we also opened in parallel, we opened the gallery in Harrods as well, which again is unusual.
0: That's amazing. So, So the show that we saw was Andy Warhol and its title Beyond the Brand. And for you, Warhol has been a constant for many, many years. In fact, you actually met the artist yourself. What was it about Warhol, pop art? and art all coming together for you, knowing that this was going to be something that you would make the central to your life? Well, you know,
2: as a young man and you don't really have any money and you go to New York and you stay in these really bizarre places, you know, on, <laughs> on, uh, you may remember the hotel actually in the Borat movie, uh, uh, the the Wellington Hotel, when he goes in the lift and he thinks that's the room. So we used to stay in sort of places like that or or in some... Hotel between Second and Third Avenue above a sex cake shop, you know, because we didn't have any money. But the, the Coliseum was there then, and Art Expo uh, used to be held in the Coliseum. So, this Romanesque ground building on the Upper West Side, which is now the Mandarin Hotel, they knocked it all down. And um, Feldman had produced uh, Cowboys and Indians, the last series that Warhol did. So, I called home and said, Have we got any money? And said, Well, not really, but. If you believe in it, anyway, I was offered two series of cowboys and Indians. I think then for under three thousand um, dollars for the whole series. Yeah, the whole series. And wow. anyway, I we didn't buy it, so I didn't really know what I was doing, and and uh, went out. and Andy Warhol was out because they were launching it, and he was with Marielle Hemingway, and you know went to Studio Fifty Four as well. So got to go once, but I was very young, so but. Yeah, I mean, it was just New York, just the energy and the vibrancy and and the idea, and and then later on, as we we started to we operate very differently in that I decided that when I was introduced to Warhol, that it wasn't enough just to sell a print. I wanted to know everything about it, and as we developed and we moved to London, and Kate and joined us and and uh, and the team, we started to research how it was that we wanted to deal with him. And we didn't just want to sell Warhol, we wanted to collect Warhol. And we wanted to show Warhol in the way that he had produced them and how he changed the world and that to exhibit the work in series, whether it be twos or fours, not always possible, or tens. So we set about collecting uh, every set that we could, because I think he produced 15k.
3: Uh, 15 portfolios of 10 yes yeah. but uh, throughout his career I mean I think there's 43 45 uh, sets portfolios that's the threes the fours the sixes so we have I, I think we almost have acquired every single set but every I think we, over I think the we have years we've, we've yeah, every portfolio 40 of the portfolios
2: so this whole exhibition isn't everything that we have yeah. But we love this idea of people walking through the door and interacting with us as well. And I think, you know, our doors are open. You don't buzz to come in to see us. We're very democratic in that respect. We love we love people coming in.
0: But, I mean, that's the ethos of talk Arts for everyone, isn't it? And I feel like so many people are drawn to Warhol. They might not even realise that they've seen Warhol because Warhol really celebrated branding. You know, Campbell's uh, soup cans and... Um, lot like like you've got like Chanel in here and Apple and Coca-Cola all all these brands that he got behind people might not even realize that they've encountered a Warhol or they or, or the opposite is that you actually have seen a Warhol and suddenly in real life you're encountering these objects and you see them with a different eye.
3: Oh, totally I think that was a genius and I think you know you talk about the title is called Beyond the Brand and it was you know, very much the aim, because we had this incredible collection of art, like such depth, such variety. And although most of it is just this arc of 20 years, really, when you look at the the Marilyn portfolio of 10, uh, which was created in 1967, and then the final portfolio of 10, the Cowboys and Indians in 86, you know, it's really a, a small period of working. It wasn't Andy's only period of working, we know he was a hugely successful illustrator in the 50s and obviously some of the most seminal works of the 60s, um, early 60s. But really, in this exhibition, which is exploring primarily the works on paper, the graphic works, those two-part portfolios have this incredible arc of iconography. Where, as you say, Russell, it's like you think you 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 know you know Andy, you've seen it. But I mean, I think, like for example, the the Marilyn Monroe image. I mean, most people will, when they think of Marilyn Monroe, will think of Warhol's image of Marilyn Monroe more than anything. You know, he, he managed to take objects, people, Images, brands in particular, and ensure, one by choice, he was a phenomenal at understanding, being on pulse with what was happening in in that period in America with the consumer in America. Um, and then understanding these were legacy images. You know, the, the ads portfolio, which he created in 1985, which is the sort of epicentre of the exhibition, because we have this phenomenal collection of the, the 10 paintings, so the 10 unique canvases, which was a real cool I mean, this is sort of museum uh, worthy works that we acquired. So it kind of felt super exciting and fitting to like hang the whole exhibition on these 10 unbelievable images. Um, But what's so interesting is whilst they were created in 1985, Each of the icons in them, well, certainly nine of the 10 icons, are all referencing a material from the 40s and 50s. So even then, in his present day, in the very, you know, he was the height of his sort of popularity influence, he's utilizing images and his understanding of context was about legacy. Legacy. Um, I mean, even the format, the very format, you know, you you see them there, these are very square, you know, proportionate. Instagram ready. Yeah, yeah, exactly,
2: (laughs) exactly. I often say to people, you know, think about it, and we were talking about going back to the future, and, um, you know, no mobile phones, uh, virtually no computers, you know, database was just beginning to come in. And the fact is that, that, that he... I think he understood our world and keeps reinventing himself almost every year. And you know, you see the you see the uh, Warhol Barbie, you see the Converse trainers, you see that every year. You talked about endangered species. I think it, I think um, actually, when you go into I believe the San Francisco Science Museum, you know, they're there. It's the fact that these animals are looking at you. It's our responsibility you know how how we touch the environment but warhol warhol understood it and it's like every year something happens with warhol that whereby he becomes more relevant
1: you know it's really interesting because i was thinking a lot about psychology when i was in your show because i think that is one of the things that he's so good at is sort of deconstructing what makes us human what makes us yearn what makes us lust what makes us love what makes us want to escape and and dream and and kind of not actually live in the everyday because a lot of these images particularly of the kind of Hollywood stars or even the queen they're constructed you know the queen has her crown she has all the jewels there's this real strength of um, conviction even in the way that she looks at the camera and I feel like it's this kind of idea of the mask and all of these kind of ideas of persona but it's all psychological and I would it got me thinking about the young him and like when he was working in fashion magazines and doing all those illustrations. It's almost like that adornment of like high heel shoes or the Chanel perfume, how that can bring out personality in someone. Or some way or- yeah, and it kind of unlocks this 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 other thing that isn't even necessarily physical. It's about the soul or the psychology of the soul. Um yeah, I I, I particularly felt it with the Marilyns but also those those incredible portraits of the queen and it was even more touching cuz now she's obviously passed passed away. What? Um can you speak about
2: <laughs> Can
1: you speak a bit about those well, portraits of uh, uh, the queen?
2: Ones? Interesting yeah. enough, Warhol was deeply spiritual. He came from a Polish background, um, Catholic. very Catholic. And it carried on throughout the whole of his life. He actually went to church. Um, interestingly, there was an exhibition in uh, uh, Brooklyn called Revelations. And the last picture is David LaChapelle and Warhol surrounded by the, Bi- by the Bibles. And, and I think, I believe that was the last photograph. Kate. It there was,
3: the, yeah, it was the last photo of uh, before
2: of Before oh. he passed. Um, but the, the, it's interesting when you talk about the queen because for the jubilee they projected the warhol image onto buckingham palace wow and yes, and then when she died as she was lying in state all the four queens that he produced the flags people had to queue and walk past warhol you know an american icon with a british icon and i think it's 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 it is incredible how he how he how he does touch our lives in that respect but it's actually you know, Warhol famously said, you know, look at the surface of the, my paintings, that's who I am. But it's almost, Richardson said that even when you're looking at a soup can, it's like the soup can is looking at you, it becomes a portrait like the Mona Lisa. You know, everything engages with you head on and asks you to comment. And I think it's I think that that is is very powerful. And as we said, how he keeps reinventing himself as he did with the queen and how this country used that image of of the Queen more than anything else that we that that we saw. And Kate, okay, what are you?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting what you say about the idea of, of the mask and and this sort of persona, this aura. I mean, he did manage to create an aura around the, the, the portrait, certainly, that he created, whether they're of the animals or whether they're of individuals. And, you know, he's often sort of, you know, the celebrity artist. He obviously, you know, conducted his life in a very, you know, excitable manner. It was the parties. It was the that, you know, he was obsessed by celebrity. You know, uh, Judy Garland, you know, famously, you know, befriended her uh, daughter, spent many nights at Studio 54 and, and held court. But I think there was... Um, a huge vulnerability in him as a as a person, and uh, I think, as you say, Robert, this I think growing not growing up, but having that really established period, you know, ten years where he's working in this, you know, high fashion, high sort of retail and beauty, the adornment, you know, and and I don't think it was just about the objects. I think it was about the aura and the mis- the mis- mystique around it. And so I, and I think that was very American. I think almost you, you, could, Warhol could only have been, in a, you know, an American artist at that time because it was such a product of what was happening. And so at the end of the exhibition in in 148, I was playing on that because I think it was it was it was really important sometimes overlooked and so we've hung the um, the portfolio of the myths series which was created in 1981 which very much these icons of American myths you know you've got Uncle Sam you've got Tagaba you've got um father Christmas um, or Santa Claus uh, Dracula um, and you've got Andy himself where he's put himself as the tenth protagonist but very much as this figure of you know his sort of childhood hero it was a uh, uh, the shadow which he'd listened to on the radio in the 30s but it was in the shadow and I think you know and I put that against a photograph of him and Nico dressed up as superheroes in the factory and I think he very much lived his life you know whether it's the wigs whether it was the outfits it was a mask he placed and his art was that projection and through these people through these heroes Um, but then interestingly hung opposite these myths is the series the Cowboys and Indians and this was a really unusual series, um, mainly because it was an uncommissioned series. It was totally manifested by Warhol himself. And we know from source photographs of his apartment in New York, he heavily collected like the Edward Curtis, you know, photographs of the uh, Native American Indians and all the artifacts, the the blankets, the baskets. And this particular portfolio of, of 10 icons, some are key key figures in this um, in this sort of period of history, whether it's General Custer or Theodore Roosevelt or Annie Akeley. And then you've got this very Warholian, you know, John Wayne, you know, the figure that he idolized in Hollywood movies of sort of, you know, the real, I suppose, the Hollywood cowboys and Indians. So I love that, you know, whilst he's, you know, slightly scratching the surface and making, you know, I'm not so facile. I may say I'm facile and I like pretty things and you know want to come back as a as a diamond on this um Taylor's fingers. Finger. <laughs> but actually, he he I think he was struggling with deeper issues there and and I'm very, very aware of them. And
2: well, think about it now as well with Cowboys and Indians, the world that we face and the world, the politics that it faces at the moment, and how important. These images are of, of contemporary society, like he did, like he did Mao. I mean, he said he wasn't political, but Nixon said he was going to change the face of world politics. He went to meet Chairman Mao and Warhol documented that in screen form. Actually, he did the graphics before he did the paintings. And he went to China and actually was then followed because there was this McCarthy-esque type. You know, feeling around Warhol is he a communist? Isn't he a communist? Is he a subversive as well? But he wasn't scared or frightened about taking himself out into the world and doing these images, you know, as in with the ads, you've got this astonishing image of Ronald Reagan, you know, selling shirts, but he then became the president of the United States. So I I think it's, as we said, it's the relevance of today and the influence that. Warhol has had on every artist in every nation in, in the world. You know, look at Damien Hurst, look at Jeff Koons, look at the Chinese artists. It's, it's interesting how he transcends every society. Well, he just keeps revealing himself, doesn't he? Like you're saying, like you mentioned Barbie, because
0: we had the Barbie phenomenon, obviously, with Greta Gerwig's movie. And suddenly the relevance of the images that Warhol made come into focus more. And he's, done, he's made so much work that actually it will keep revealing itself more and more throughout the generations to come, I'm sure.
3: Definitely, and I think also just the way we you know we consume images now as well I think is, you know obviously I'm, I'm slightly obsessed by Warhol because I'm living in it at the moment but I, I feel like there's this sort of like you know, he was a precursor to the way we even thought about consuming images you know I, I you know, you look at these the, the format that he created majority of his, his screen prints you know it, it's the same format we, we choose to crop our photographs for Instagram and various different social media apps I feel you know we're now we're sort of almost conditioned to our way of thinking because because there was genius in that crop you know the image of, of Marilyn it was taken you know the source material is her film um her film sort of promo photograph from her 1953 Niagara film but you know it was the choice it's the crop the where, the registration of where her lips stay that 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 you know the famous layering of his registration in the screen. You know, the art in that is so subtle but so effective. Um, and then when you look at the, the the things he was playing with with technique, whether it's you know he, he really understood the use of the camera. And I think that's overlooked. So we have a there's a portfolio of Joseph Boy's and there's sort of three monochromatic monochrom- images in the in the portfolio. And his use of diamond dust in one, you know, reversal series and technique in the second, and then just this, this sort of almost iridescent red um, in the third, and its simplicity, you know, how much you can create with the color black, is I think what really you can see when you see this breadth of work.
1: You know, I I also, the thing I was really struck by in your show was the, the, the kind of space he leaves for us to insert our own ideas, feelings and projections. And that's so crucial. And I think in that crop even of Marilyn's image, you know, he kind of, it's it's got a clarity to it, which means he doesn't tell you everything that you need to know. He doesn't give you too much information. He gives you just enough that you're able to then create whatever it is your imagination is telling you. And I think that's somehow the key. And I do actually really agree with what you were saying earlier about the religion thing, because there's this belief in religion where you have to believe something you that isn't material that you can't actually necessarily prove. You know, even though it's written in scripture, it's written in all those things. There's a level of belief you have to have, and I feel like that's what the magic of warhol is it's the gap between this kind of space that's created and um i think a lot of people often try and overfill or over you know even in music people write too many lyrics or or you know that they're too exact about an experience but he leaves this openness for a viewer to actually activate it
3: yeah it's really interesting i like that it's got a that's, that's that's a new the space within i like that you kind of often don't think that because of the color the you know the enormity of the activity that goes on in his canvases but you're right i think that sort of the space that he leaves it's an interesting one because i think ultimately it's about the faith isn't it the faith in the object faith in the in the very and and because he you know so famously you know took himself away from the process of art making. I mean, we all know he, he didn't. That was the sort of fable, wasn't it? The idea that by screen printing, you know, make my, my you that know, there's so, it's a process that I'm disassociated from. Far from it. And I think it's that, that, that as you say, that line that's left, it's the, the artist's mark, but the genius of that mark. And it's the choice of it, the coloration, the, the technique that goes into making it. But then it's the space that's left by almost the detachment of the artist that you, the viewer, has to fill, and that's the tension. Uh, and that's the joy and I think yeah it's and because of the repetition as well sometimes it gives you that time to take it in when you see a multiplicity you know Mao versus Marilyn that was very intentional I mean pretty unlikely bedfellows but I love it you know five years apart but what do they mean and what can they mean to so many people so differently you know you can talk about martyrdom uh, you could talk about the Madonna you could do lots of different things but I mean it's it's you know it's it's punchy stuff as well beautiful but punchy
2: Why did he love the screen print so much, do you think? Well, I think that it's interesting, again, if you go back in time and you went to New York and you saw, for instance, the side of the buildings in Times Square, people were painting the adverts. I mean, guys were in these sort of little cradles with ropes down the side painting the Michelob advert. And... The screen printing was a method, whether it was plastic bags or whether it was labels, the soup can labels, that most of it was actually screen printed on a, on, a, on, a, on a mass process. But for him, the idea, I think, the physicality, and a lot of people just don't really understand the physical process of screen printing. The fact is that every graphic is an original in its own right, and many of them don't survive. You know, from nineteen sixty-seven, when you look at the Marilyn Monroe and you see that, you know, we see things in terrible condition, but everything here you'll see is pristine. That's one of the things that we've tried to do is collect in the most pristine method. But these that's were that's hand- like a rule
0: you set yourselves as a gallery.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hand hand pulled hand printed, each color is racked out and dried. So that whole process of taking the photograph, the negative, laying it on a screen, exposing the screen, pushing the ink through by hand. I mean, it's the most fabulous process. And there's not many people in the world that do it. And it's an expensive process as well. And there weren't like fast inks in the early days. So, you know, these things have just disappeared over time. People put them up on the wall with drawing pins, you know. when 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 the Marilyn series came out, it was $1,400, you know, for 10. And so, you know, the values have changed enormously because if you own these things, you are a custodian of something the world cares about. And God, just have a time machine, eh? Yeah, just got exactly. A
0: time machine and some money in the bank.
2: It, and exactly. back. I mean, yeah. Look, look at look at the Andy Mouse. You know, there's only 30 of those sets in the world. But this is course, the Keith Herring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Keith Ke- Keith Haring yeah. Warhol collaboration, and they are having fun with each other. They are talking about the business of art, and which, of course, over the last 30, 40 years, has changed out of sight. So they are having fun with each other. They are, you know, Keith Haring's portraying Warhol as Mickey Mouse, you know, the Andy Mouse, and Americana. It's like (laughs) dollars, you know. When it comes, and 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 these guys, I mean, this is, you know, before Banksy. So the influence that these guys, when Warhol walked into the street artists exhibition in New York and met uh, Keith Haring and Jean Michel Basquiat, you know, it was like God walking through the door. But you know, they they. I, I think he just, as we said, now the skateboards. you see the skateboards, Interview Magazine. You know, he's doing what you guys are doing. You know, he's interviewing all kinds of people. And he's just, he understands brand albums, working with the Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers, all of these things. You know, he's just huge. I mean, the Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs wanted actually Sean Lennon to own one of his computers. And so there's this incredible footage, filmography of um, Steve Jobs, Andy Warhol, Sean Lennon, Keith Herring and Blondie, I believe, uh, all together looking at Steve Jobs' computer. And of course, then Andy Warhol said, wow, I can use that. You know, maybe I can actually paint using one of his programs. So it's just an incredible moment in time. And of course, we have this amazing Apple painting. And now this apple, this picture of apple, has become one of the most iconic images that the world has ever seen. It's 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 amazing how things change.
3: But yeah, at a time when you know in 1985, uh, it was in its infancy. You know, Apple was what eleven, twelve months into it. You know, Steve Jobs was just you know, I suppose what Andy saw in him was the way one which excited him and he writes about in his diaries that this computer, you know, this this guy had created something, an application, you know, that he could paint with. I mean, how cool. And so he was already super excited. He was such a sort of front runner runner for sort of harnessing digital technology, installation technology, so many things that he was really, I mean, Keith Haring will will always credit Warhol. You know, if if there wasn't a Warhol, he'd never been able to create the art he did. And he paved the way for so many artists. And And then interestingly,
2: David Hockney using iPads and, If Picasso had been available to him, he would have used anything that was available.
0: When it comes to the business of art, you're a collector. This is like a lifetime collection, these Warhols especially. For you then selling them as a dealer, are you conflicted? Is it quite hard? Because you said you've had whole sets and you've loved them and they've been perfect and it took forever to track down, they're so rare, and then you sell it.
2: I mean, what is there a part of you that mourns? <laughs> this? I often tell that to just... people, actually, the best day is when you buy it, the worst day is when you sell it. But you know, you have to, and and one of the joys, I think, of what we're doing, and we're quite extraordinary as a gallery because we do own everything that we have. I, I think it was comes from being in Birmingham, and no one to, well, no one wanted to exhibit there, so we ended up having to by everything, every, every artist we dealt with, which is why we have a, a warehouse that looks like Raiders of the Lost Ark. But um, uh, yes, I think the idea of us collecting and uh, wanting to own it, and then uh, I happen to know where every single Warhol hole is that we've sold. So, oh, you do, yeah. you have a day space, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you contact the clients and you ask them sometimes if they'd like to sell them. Um, most of them don't. Um, because they do become deeply personal as well. You know, you change people's environment by them having art in their homes, and now we're also working on major projects um, in different countries, helping people build museums and build collections, and whether it be Warhol or Dylan, or whether it indeed be, you know, digital art and experiences that, that are being put into different, different areas. So I think this idea of private and public is... Um, really something that we've been working on for a long time. But the idea of owning it and collecting it uh, and being deeply involved as well. You know, for us, it's not. And why we didn't break the sets, because keeping the sets together, you know, when, when Warhol has only produced 30 Andy Mouses, 30, 30 sets of four, well, probably maybe there's only two sets left in the world. So they become so rare, like the soup cans that we have in pristine condition, from 68. So everybody broke them up because that was the easy way of doing business. Uh, And it was just a way of earning money. Whereas for us, there's a responsibility in how we exhibit and then how we sell and then how that gets passed down the line. And I think our our clients really understand that and enjoy that. Uh, And of course, when you have the catalogs that are produced, the people that write about it, the additional provenance that it gives, it's very important. Mm.
1: I mean, I think also the joy of being a gallerist is that you can also uh, choose in a way who you place them with. So you can like work out what their collection is and, and and then make sure that you're passing it on to someone that's like a custodian or guardian that will also keep it together for the long yeah, term well, and, that... and appreciate the fact it's in such good quality because they're, they're mint, pristine prints. That's what blew my mind when I was in that show. Yeah,
2: well, that, that, that's again something that, you know, when you travel all over the world and you see what people do to things... That's, that's yeah. very important to us, you know, every aspect of how you look after. Because people have this, you know, misnomer about a print. Well, it's not a print. Um, uh, as, as, as artists like Picasso, Hockney, Chagall, Miro, indeed Rembrandt, you know, these are things that are produced with great love, care, and attention. And, and uh, th- these are... Hand produced, some of them are absolutely original in their own right. You know, the trial proofs. There's only one of them in the world, so they're originals. Yeah. It's it's just as Kate said. The difference with the set of ads is that they're they're screen printed and 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 painted over on canvas, and uh, they've never been seen in the world before. They've never been exhibited. So again, this this process of trying to acquire, um, and, and we travel all over the world to look and check, you know. And you're still
0: buying, aren't you, on the...
2: Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah, all the time, all the time trying. I
0: think think what's good as well for, for Warhol is that we have works on paper, we have canvases in this exhibition, but for him, there was no hierarchy between the materiality. For him, an editioned work is as important as an original work. So as a collector you may not have the budget for an original work, of course, because they go for millions and millions of dollars, but you may be able to push yourself to get an edition potentially, but you are also getting something that the artist completely believes is as important as a unique work.
2: Yeah, I think that's true, and it's interesting to see the museums as well, whether it was the Whitney, which of course happened just, you know, uh, kind of pre-COVID and then the Tate during... Uh, the graphic element has become more and more important in the museum. Mm. So, for instance, you know, the Flash portfolio was was shown, and we'd been collecting that because I just thought... What is that portfolio? It's a series of 11.
3: Yeah, so it's 11 works. Anyway, it was made in 68, uh, but it's referencing uh, the 63, um, the Kennedy assassination. But it's small scale. They were on the... They were <laughs> actually opposite. We hung them opposite the um, soup cans uh, in the gallery in 29 on the silver wall, and it's kind of like this moment, and even each of the eleven images is referencing something, and I think there's a lot of sort of layering of the conspiracy theories going on around uh, that particular event, um, and his use of technique in it. So you'll see, you know, the sort of the, the the sort of reversal series. You can barely make out Kennedy's face in one of them. There's you know, uh, there's a lot of the clippings are referencing from the the newspaper um, articles that came out in those subsequent days and weeks. Um, but it's that that use of that sort of raw material, that appropriation of the news or what was being fed and the images of, of those iconic moments uh, before that tragic event, but then compiling it into something that, you know, is almost, by putting it on this sort of metallic reflective wall, it was like the flash of a light bulb. You know, it was that moment, you know, you can't say that was the moment that was catapulted in frame, but it was a moment in history. It was a it was a seismic event. But yet the imagery, the way he's portrayed the images in the 11 um, uh, um, pieces it's very dumbed down. It's almost mystique. It's more about the order. Beautifully
2: of it. printed, um, and it's interesting yeah. because they're exactly the same year as the soup cans, where he only used five colours, and you you almost think, well, how did you do that? Because they're so complicated, and they're referencing Lichtenstein as well with the Bende dot and all of these, all of these things.
1: Again, it's such a great precursor to kind of like. I I don't know, like, that work particularly really struck me because I hadn't really seen that one before. And it speaks a lot about the psyche and the the kind of way that the public will get on board with these stories that are incomplete, sorry. So, like, we didn't know who'd shot him. And then there becomes this whole kind of interest in true crime now. But I feel like that idea of death as well, because everyone's fascinated, you know, when people die He did the electric
0: chair, didn't he? And he did the the, the car crashes and then the riots and (laughs) these kind of really, really dark imagery but yeah. they they've they've scorched on the psyche of society and they are history it's historical oh, moments and again
1: the actual visual of those yeah. works is so are so deconstructed and simple in a way that then your brain just gets bigger and bigger with the imagination of how dark this this experience is and it's almost like as a viewer being faced with death somehow you know this intensity and it got me thinking about alice neal's portrait of him where he's been i think it was he'd a, either he'd a, been, a, shot. A, he had been shot <laughs> wasn't stitched it? back together. Um but didn't he also have an operation at one that's point? When he yeah, died, cool. he had his
0: gallstone. Rip- that was when yeah. he died, that's
1: right, yeah. So it was after he'd been shot, so he'd had his own like Mortality, experience of near death. Yeah. But then I-, I loved the idea of Alice Neal painting him because she was known as being the person that captured people's souls. That was like a description of her as an artist and, and not attractive have, like, painter. Enough-
0: like people knew they weren't going to look attractive, they were painted by Alice yeah. Neal. For someone like Warhol, was yeah. willing to allow himself at his most vulnerable because he was, you know, he had to wear a corset or was it a corset or something? Yeah, to absolutely. Yes. He sort of came after that, and he obviously was very insecure, but he allowed this other artist who we knew was gonna paint him unattractive, but also with the scars. That's in
1: the, mo- the, the moment collection, truth if you of want to see that. It's just yeah. insane. When you think of artists now like Tracy Emin, you know, talking about her stoma bag and, you know, being really vulnerable, posting photographs of herself within her artwork um, and painting herself now with that bag, it got me thinking about the, the kind of what he's done to, like, empower so many people. Um, I know Frida Kahlo has as well. There's been loads of artists who have done things like that on that personal level, but I loved those. those. Uh, I
2: those think when you, with, with the new, you know, Netflix series that came out and the Andy Warhol diaries. Mm-hmm. Loved I think for the first time it sort of exposed him and his, not only about his sexuality, but his vulnerability as well. Interesting as well, when you go back to Paramount, of course, his, his lover, and you, you start to look at paintings in a completely different context. But I, th- I, 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 think, uh, I I think it does, even when you come back to, for instance, Vesuvius downstairs, which was one of the very last series of works that he did. And, you and that's watched, original, isn't it? You have Yes, to, it is. Yeah. Well, he went back to painting and he painted the 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 he overpainted on the lines that the lines were screened and then he decided to go back to painting but when you see him on the netflix series towards the end and he's looking very sickly and he's in italy but he's kind of he's come out almost with that biblical saying you know i don't really know what i'm doing you know i i i uh, what do they want from me what does everybody want from me who am i why am i doing it you know It's kind of they know not what they do sort of statement. And uh, he's been doing a lot of, he'd done a lot of work as well with Basquiat in terms of religious iconography. So I think he's deeply spiritual at this point as well.
0: Well, he survived cheated death at that point, you know, and that really changed him. There's a quote about, you know, about his practice that he says here. He says, the reason I'm painting this way is that I want to be a machine. And I feel that whatever I do and do machine-like is what I want to do. So, it's, you, like we said at the start of the interview, it's, it's almost like the artist isn't present. It's like it's just this automatic, and I think that's why there's so much, because it just feels automatic from him. It doesn't end. His output doesn't end. And, we, we, you know, your show is barely scratching the surface, and it's jam-packed with, uh, like, iconic works of art that are historical and museum-worthy. But yet that's just, like, skin level.
1: You know the thing—the thing about the printmaking as well—is that it's actually a very physical human process. Especially in that time, um, we and Margate have our own print studio, and and I've, I was watching them the other day doing lithographs and doing screen prints, and it's so physical, and it's actually you have to be an artist, really, to even A, be a printmaker. Um, And also printmakers that collaborate with artists often get into the brain of the artist. So it's almost like they're performing something, like they're almost like trying to get it exactly as the soul of the artist would. So in a way, they're very human, like screen prints, even though it is a machine. And that's what's annoying me about today's um, culture with contemporary art, is that a lot of museums are selling prints now by leading artists that are actually just gicle prints. And they're selling them for like £2,000 or something. When they're not, they're literally a print it out on a printer that you, I know it's a big printer and it's probably like a, a you know, one that will have inks that are... Bougie, a bougie print printer. Whatever. Yeah. Bougie printer, but it's still a yeah. printer. For me, I'm into the artisanal, the kind of, you know, the, the skill, handmade. Yeah. So almost like, and that's what the Warhol show reminded me of, the actual skill of it, the artistry of it, and the passion of printmaking.
3: Totally, I think, and if you, if you, there's a Mick Jagger from a series he did in the 70s, he and, and you look at the layering, the collaging, and then next to it, we've got one of the original collar types, because you actually look at the yes. process And through, I mean, he loved materials. He was always experimenting with things. And whilst we look at this very, this output, and it's like, as you say, very machine-like, but yet it was an extension of his arm. You still cannot take away. You can say it's machine-like, but the machine is the brain down to the cut, to the crop. And then all the processes that came out. And I think he you know the the experimentation that he um you know projected through his career from the you know we have these you know, the, the balloons the silver balloons that was a, that was a collaboration with a, an electrical engineer you know he was he was always what is that boundaries. what are the
0: silver balloons then
3: yeah, actually
1: if you're going to visit the show in in new bond street the best thing is when you walk in the entrance we actually got a picture of me and russell which we'll be posting
3: oh well great i'm like well, they're, they're playing uh playing to the silver clouds which he he sort of famously showed in the castelli gallery in 66 but it started as this conversation i believe with this electrical engineer that he wanted to create um this floating light bulb but it evolved that they couldn't actually create that and they ended up uh, evolving into these sort of clouds but he wanted this sort of dreamlike um, movement. So they were like half filled with helium, half with um, air. So they kind of had this sort of floating, chasmic sort of experience. Um, he actually showed them first, I think in 65 in the, in the Ferris, but really the major exhibition was in 66. Um, and then many exhibitions, I, you know, the Tate Room in 2020 was brilliant. They've got an exhibition on in Dublin at the moment where they've recreated. Ours are very static, unfortunately, because we did try and make them a little dreamlike, with, at the opening, but they kept getting popped on the doors, so we've now tethered them to the uh, to the ceiling. Um, so not quite as Warhol had intended, but they do make quite a cool entrance.
2: We we um, love the entrance, <laughs> and of course, you know the factory the factory was leaking, so um, it, it it rained. We actually worked with the Andy Warhol Foundation and uh, bought uh, one of the last paintings he did, which was a double Elvis called a ghost. It was the Ghost wow. Elvis, which they, because he came back uh, and all, all the canvases had been soaked. So he said, oh, I've got to do them again. So when he did, it was actually the second show that he did, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the Ferris. Ferris so, uh, so you've got the, the
3: Ferris Elvises and the Studio Elvises. And the
2: Studio Elvises. And anyway, we bought what was termed as the Ghost Elvis because this, this painting came alive. Suzanne Ciani is one of the great, one of his great friends, but uh, um, conservatoires. Um, unrolled it and said oh my god you know like talk about aura yeah we ended up uh, acquiring that painting which has been one of the great things interesting enough when you see the photograph of Bob Dylan in the studio with Andy Warhol Warhol actually gave him that painting so um, uh, it was actually a very funny story about it because we were in Dylan's studio and uh, uh, Jeff Rosen who's uh, worked with him for Forty-two years, 42 it? years, yeah. But you guys uh, work with Bob Dylan as well, don't you? Yes, yes, That's we the do. Connection, yeah.
1: Oh, we love. Dylan. <laughs> so
2: so to... we're in. the... We're, if, if you want to hear the story, he was in the studio anyway. Nat Finkelstein, we've got these photographs that Nat Finkelstein had taken of Dylan, and uh, supposedly that um, they didn't get on very well uh, over Evie Sedgwick. Um, and oh, uh, yeah. um, anyway, girl. Yeah. Uh, Jeff says, "Oh, they've got they've got a double Elvis." So. Um, I said to Dylan, well, apparently, I said, he gave you that painting. I said, and we've also got uh, photographs of out of the studio window, and you've got the painting on the top of the car, and we can see your hands holding the painting. He said, yeah, that's right. And uh, I said, the story is that you didn't like it, so you swapped it for a sofa, right? He said, yes, I did. And I said, that's the painting that now hangs in MoMA, that is the most visited painting in, 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 in the whole of moment. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, Jeff says they've got one and Dylan says, how much is it? I said, well, it's not for sale, but the last one just sold at Sotheby's for $37.5 million. And since, by the way, sold for $80, $90 million. So he just looked at me, Dylan looked at me and says, guess I made a mistake then.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Has he still got the couch though? Maybe not.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean-
2: Oh, so when
0: that. you got this Elvis yourself, th- this has obviously moved through your hands now. That's been moved. Uh, on. Yes,
2: it is. But but the cl- the client actually has left it with us. So yes, we do have it. So if you would like to see it one day, we will show. I would it love you, to. Yes. <laughs> what are the well, what yeah,
0: are the amazing. pressures of running not one but two galleries on New Bond Street, prime real estate in Mayfair in London? Well,
2: ann Harrod's. Oh, and, and Sorry, and, uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry to drop yeah. that one. Anne Harrod's. Yeah, it's 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 a um, it's interesting. It, it, I, I think you know the. The um, commitment, uh, I don't know whether you know, but we had an exhibition by an artist called Dominic Harris, digital artist that opened this space. I mean, this space uh, was inaugurated in 1876. So the first year, the Impressionists um, uh, exhibited their work at the, uh, the Paris, well, outside the Paris Salon, they call themselves the Salon des Refuse. But we're only the second people in this building as a fine arts society. So um, the, the 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 legacy, is huge but with the digital exhibition that we did of dominic harris we had 14 million TikTok views or something so you talked about freddie mm. mercury they the cues for that were going all the way around the block for sotheby's oh, and we got next door, going all it? the way around yeah, the yeah. block with our exhibition wow. it's a brilliant atmosphere okay. it's a queue and 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 it it i think it's listen it's what better thing could you do in life but do what we do so it
1: I saw some of the digital art in the basement. At
3: yeah, yeah, there, there was sort nine. of a dialogue yeah. with the endangered species. I like the idea that. That's right. I think if Andy were alive today and making art, uh, one, he was such a huge I don't think there are many practicing artists that don't owe some kind of influence or impact from from Andy's art making and just knowing how in particular this digital artist works, where for him it was about bringing to life, you know, these the, the butterflies, this this act of you know, by your touch and all of his works are interactive, so by your touch or your gesture these, these you know, these magnificent animals come to life and, and you get to become sort of a participant in the in the artwork so i loved it one because it was at odds to what andy was doing as we talked about famously disassociates himself from the art but equally it was talking about the beauty and the gesture and the movement of these art and in his endangered species he's got the um silver spot but- butterfly um and so it was i just thought it was a really lovely dialogue and also interestingly this you know artist the format he's chosen to put his artworks in was pretty much iconically that same square format which obviously for all of us in our visual outlook not saying all artists are influenced in, in scale but i think there's something that that sits when you're looking at a single icon a single image um that is quite deferential so i just like the the play
2: so yes our, our i guess our passion in dealing with uh, all kinds of areas but obviously encouraging the artists to dream and then helping them, I guess, you know, get new studios, uh, expand how it is that they think and what they can produce in the world.
0: As an exhibition that's running over, uh, the spread across the two galleries, what are each of your favorite moments in each of them that as, a, as someone who's gonna go and visit the show after hearing this podcast, they should absolutely go and spend time with?
2: Well, I think it will be different for everybody that comes through the door. I think that, you know, you may be interested in one thing or another, but you won't have necessarily seen it before. So I think, you know, keep an open mind. And I think with the vitrines that have been put out, with all these fabulous, you know, ephemera that relate to the art and the magazines and all these things that we collect, I think, you know, I, I, I think people will find their own movement. I just love the whole thing of the pink and the balloons as you... Come into the gallery, and 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 also how the atmosphere changes at night as well. That you look through the other soup can at night, and it, it's. I, I we're very very busy, so I think people are just enjoying themselves when they come.
3: But they do have to come downstairs to the uh, pop shop as well. that ode to Keith Haring, which oh, yes. I think was you know obviously a lot of dialogues been made. <laughs> yeah, talk about the influence of Warhol. Um, and I think, you know, when you work with practicing artists, it's it's wonderful to sort of celebrate the influence he did have on, on, on practicing artists, obviously. Um, and I think the the dialogue with you know, Basquiat and, and Herring, as Paul mentioned, but Herring's a really interesting one, I think, because of the, you know, they, they met only in sort of 84 at the Shafazi show. And then, you know, they reputedly I mean, they spoke weekly up until um, Warhol's death, so it was only three years But the portfolio that we acquired by Herring, that was sort of co signed by by Warholm, was such a collaboration because of their joint love of Disney. And I love this kind of fairy tale. You know, you think about these guys and there's so many cool icons and everything you think about, but I just love that they kind of were kindred spirits over this American dream. You know, it was just this like really lovely moment that I could have imagined that they would be talking about this kind of the personalization of Mickey Mouse. And you know, uh, Andy always said, Oh, I wanted to be Minnie because then I could be close to Mickey. You but know, and great, it was this sort
2: of it's a great insta room as well. Well so. exactly so then we had
3: real fun because I was like you kind of obviously Obviously, if you you know love art you you know i'd have loved to have been at those pop shops in uh in the 80s in new york or in in tokyo in 88 it sounds you know it, it, the images that you know when you're studying art history these are like seminal moments you know he, you know he literally it was so different to andy's practice but i think andy's liberated so many artists to think that you know just line drawings these monochromatic forms that were kind of these automotive um drawings but had such gesture and dynamics and could be Iconic, whether it's the barking dog or the uh, the waving man. So I, I love that, that that you could create a room and an installation that was evocative of another seminal moment in, in art history. But it was kind of all of that that juice and joy of Warhol, because he did. He had, you know, he was always surrounded by people, by music, and he was always pushing the boundaries and kind of trying to, even if it wasn't him that there was big, that there was the big experimenter. He loved to push those around him, whether it was movie making, whether it was like Interview magazines, And and I think, you know, Herring and and many of those artists are such great products uh, of his guidance.
1: And they both would have loved people going in there and doing exactly. social, media. Just exactly. exactly. it, like, social media. imagine like and that whole idea of like fifteen minutes yeah. of fame. Exactly. You know, embarrassingly, we did some selfies in the show, and there's one that Russ took of me where I am with the shopping trolley full of cans. I look ridiculous, but I might embarrass myself publicly and post Please that. Please do. Um, and also, I loved the dress. You know, the screen-printed yes. dress um, with with the suit can design. Yeah. One, That's mine. Which you have <laughs> in the show. That's
2: mine. <laughs> you're, you're not giving that up, Paul. That's not being sold. Right? You're not giving that one up. <laughs> <No>. That's <laughs> very personal. Yeah. (laughs)
0: well we're gonna get to our final questions this has been so um fascinating and everyone listening you have to to go down and see this exhibition it's really kind of feels once in a lifetime really um and it's and it's free to get in so the first question is guys to both of you uh if you could do an art heist you could do an imaginary art theft for any work of art in the world for yourselves what would it be and why
2: Oh cool.
3: okay anywhere in the world I'm I'm in a. am in a I'm in a world of Warhol right now but for me mm.
0: um it could be a Warhol you want to take then if you well, want to Well,
3: a Warhol it. no no a Warhol would definitely be one of the early illustrations of the big gold shoes I mean I think they were so amazing oh, really? yeah they're like I just love that they're, that they're everything that isn't Warhol but everything that is you know the glitz and the glamour but the fine line and the you know the influence from his mother all of that and they they're, they're really rare I mean I saw but they had some in the Whitney and then I think Christie's or Sotheby's were selling some in New York at the end of last year, but um, they're definitely something that I think is very important uh, in, in Warhol's career that struck me. Um, but I'm a big right. fan. I love the cats as well. Yes, oh, my, cat named Sam, amazing. Just their little oh, personalities so and the gold work. I mean, the early illustrations, you know, we can have them all. We're actually going to mount a major show of we've collected all of those illustrations as of well. Of course, you have. Yes, okay, we yes. have all of those. So, um, oh but that's a show in itself. We actually couldn't even put them into this because we we're like, there's just way too much excitement in that, and it needs a it needs a, a sort of vehicle in its own. But I'm, I'm a big Georgia O'Keeffe fan. So, uh, you know, uh, those, those I think for many people, maybe as a female and a mother as well, but there's something so bombastic about them. You know, there's, a, there's a, the detail of just the natural world, but also, you know, the, the large scale gesture of them. Uh, I think everything that she painted was pretty sublime. Um, and some of those, the, those, those shows and particularly the flowers, those sort of open-ended uh, flowers in bloom will be something that always, you know, rests for me.
2: Amazing. And Paul? Uh, well, I'm kind of in Warhol mode, so it was sort of um, really would be the Last Supper, but um, there's a friend of ours that has a painting in his house that is um, the Eves Climb Blue Nude, and it would probably be that. <laughs> oh, wow. So if I could ever persuade him to let it go, that's the one that I want. <laughs> You'd end up just selling it, though, Paul.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I try not to. <laughs> Um, the next question is Robert.
3: What is your favourite colour? Oh, me is blue. Uh, any type of blue. I love light blues, dark blues, <laughs> teal, which I went crazy with the show on because in the Chanel bottle, I felt like there was just this... Uh, I just think blue's got everything. You've got the sky, the sea, everything that gives it, but I think it can evoke positive and dark emotions, which can also be, be good as well. So, yeah, my my teal will probably be my blue at the moment.
2: Oh, God, that's terrible because mine's the same. And I'm actually looking at a, a, a remoir here Uh, that because he was a actually he was a worked at a porcelain uh, manufacturer early on in his career and uh, there's the most magnificent painting in front of me of a blue vase looking out of the window in france with lattice work and it's that deep 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 blue and it's yeah it's magnificent so yeah, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to be slightly boring there. So the
1: <laughs> Curiously, though, the, the work behind you also There's has a Picasso. Yes, behind.
2: it does. That's what, Picasso. That Picasso. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. Uh, that's obviously when he's ensconced in Notre Dame de Vie and he's painting himself as a virile young man. That's actually done on a board, on a panel, on a wood panel.
1: Do we know what Andy Warhol's favourite colour was?
3: Mm. No, but I think, I mean, look, and I think it's always look a good show like got this. Be
0: diamond or gold.
3: Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say come on I mean I'm going to say silver right because yeah, yeah. like everything And everything I know, he did was silver I know the this, this silver clouds were predating the moon landing but he talks about you know the factory the silver the diamond dust you know the celebrity I just think you've got to kind of associate him with silver in that respect I think it would be fitting to um, and he talks about you know yeah. the astronauts wearing the shiny silver I think for him there was that I you know we talked earlier about the shiny the crowns or the the shiny gems but I think Yes. yeah silver and it's reflective i
1: think and actually diamonds yeah. almost D- yeah silver, exactly there? there's like that that reflective and the reflections yeah you know when the tate had the big retrospective and then the pandemic happened and it got yeah. shut down um for a while um i always was thinking during the first lockdown like how weird it is those balloons are probably just like on their like, own in a room floating totally and how much he would love that like i think right, warhol would have actually yeah. thought it was he would, really like
3: the aura. cool everyone's still there they're still floating yeah, yeah. definitely
0: what is the best advice you've ever received uh, when it comes to your business, I guess? Uh,
1: yeah, like running the gallery, curating, collecting. Um,
3: well, for, for me... Uh Probably on a curating front it was actually it wasn't really directly about curating it was about how to maybe think about an artist and it was an odd one because it was uh, for me it was one of the first exhibitions I curated at the gallery in two thousand and eight and it was Bob Dylan it was the first time we were showing Bob Dylan so I was um to put it you know lightly I was really really crapping myself because there's this person that's this like huge cultural icon this mass responsibility it was the first time we were showing him you know it's a visual artist we had very little um sort of, I had very little context from him about what he was painting in this body of work. And so to try and put yourself with, you know, reading around him, you know, obviously the extensive output, creative output he's done through his musical word and written word, it was trying to put into... Uh, you know, layman's terms. You know, maybe what what he was he was doing with these paintings. And I remember speaking to Jeff, and it was you know it, it was sort of the advice of when you're curating or putting on a body of show, you need to you know not put yourself. You cannot speak on behalf of the artist. You you cannot present this work you know on behalf of the artist. But there has to be so there is a responsibility to try and give the viewer and you know a, a journey through this work. So it was about for me, it was sort of trying to think about the artist as somebody I was going to do the curation to be a vehicle for, for potentially opening those questions to allow someone to stand there. And you, know, you talk about space earlier uh, with the work is trying to give someone the space, but just enough context that was broad that would allow people to question or understand, you know, when it was painted, what that artist might've been doing, what was happening in the world. So context being your broader thing rather than your own narrative. So for me, it was about stepping away. And because we had such a, at the time, Dylan, you know, Dylan's management, Sonny Jeff, was saying, you know, you can't associate with the music, you cannot associate with Bob doing X, Y, and Z. So it was a learning curve to be, how do you, you have this role as a curator to tell a story with, without putting your own imprint on it and, and trying to interpret somebody else's?
2: Don't screw it up was the actual, actual oh, yeah, words. Yeah, that was actually what he said
3: to me. Yeah, just don't screw it up. Yeah, I, I <laughs> think that I really. But, but I took just from a it. Stre- just to streamline say, that. Yeah, no, She's
2: been. The- <laughs> so that was a very long answer to a very short answer. <laughs> that's very don't direct. screw it up. Okay, great. <laughs> oh wow. Good advice. <laughs>
1: Um, and, and what advice would you have for collectors? Because I'm really into um, people collecting prints and also understanding what prints actually are, like knowing that an etching is an etching and that's actually had the hand of the artist. You know what I mean? Like knowing that a screen print is a screen print. I, knowing I think it, the most, the you know, the
2: most important thing, because people are obsessed with investment and value and all these things. And of course, as you go up the scale in terms of buying, you know, you have to know uh, to a certain extent what it is that you do, but... The, the change in values in the contemporary art market over the last 30 years have been so enormous. It's kind of in line with the stock market, I guess, and investments. But the fact of the matter is just enjoy spending your money on something that you really love. I think that's the most important thing to do. And hopefully, you'll trust the person that you buy off. Um, I, I you? I,
1: uh, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> no but those relationships are really yes. important very important with the, with the gallery and the collector because it's all about it's trust it's and respect important. and also if you have a long career it's an amazing thing to grow and also
2: we travel all over the world and we got to. People's houses and, and and businesses and you, you know the, it's a very personal business as well. So you have responsibilities. Things happen in people's lives whereby sometimes you know they need help and and that's that's what you have to do. So it's a responsibility in every aspect. I think when you're when you're working with people, but I guess you know my the biggest advice maybe it's not advice. It was one of the things that happened to me in my tiny gallery in Birmingham when somebody walked in. Who, who became a great friend and a, a bit of a mentor. Um, but it was, don't judge anybody. And I, I, it's one of the things that I dislike about our business is the buzzing the door thing. I, I, we're, we're just not like that. And so it's giving people that opportunity to look and then they will make up their own mind. And I think that's really one of the mantras of, of our business. That's that's the way that we run it. And if you can give people information, the idea that if you walk into an exhibition and you don't know and therefore you're ignorant is just ridiculous. Because how would we know? You know, even when you talk about somebody like Warhol that is is supposedly everybody knows about, well, they don't, you know, because they've never been taught it at school or they they just hasn't been part of their life. So the idea that, Allowing people into your space, they're they're guests in our space and that I want them to enjoy their experience
1: well we really enjoyed visiting and we've loved talking to both of you thank you so much and for everyone listening you can go on Instagram and follow Halcyon at at Halcyon Gallery and you can also visit um, halcyongallery.com which is an incredible resource Um, it's actually a great educational thing you can learn so much about different artists there we mentioned Bob Dylan who we adore and um, hopefully you're going to do another show Bob Dylan for Talk Art putting it out there (laughs) (laughs) we love you Bob but also I just found out that the show is extended now until the 7th of April yes so the exhibition is running until the 7th of april everybody so you have even more time but just get down there go and there's see. there's a little warhol easter egg i just um, want
0: to add in because we talked about Mary, marion monroe's lips earlier and there was there's a, a fable that if warhol liked who he was painting and they had lipstick on the lipstick would remain within the lip line if he didn't like them the lipstick would smear over the line and that was his coding to say this person i consider a bitch i, didn't
3: know that. <laughs> I love that. So, uh, that that was fast. on Jerry Hall. I'm, I'm going to use that, too, that now. yeah
1: to Ryan Murphy, who was a guest of ours just around Christmas time and uh, sorry, actually January the 1st. So anyway, um, you can get down to 148 or number 29, New Bond Street. There are two spaces for this incredible opposite uh, each other exhibition. Yeah. yeah. Dedicated to the life and work of Andy Warhol. And thank you both of you so much. And we'll be back very soon. Go and see this show.
0: Thanks, guys.
2: Bye. Cheers, Kate. Cheers, Bye. Bye. Thank, Bye. You, Bye. Guys. thank you, Bye-bye.
3: Bye.